Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Previously on The Report. Two years ago, the acting attorney general asked me to serve as special counsel, and he created the special counsel's office. It is important that the office's written work speak for itself. It contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decisions. We chose those words carefully, and the work speaks for itself. And I will close by reiterating the central allegation of our indictments, that there were multiple, systematic efforts to interfere in our election. And that allegation deserves the attention of every American. It's April 18th, 2019. Attorney General Bill Barr summons reporters to the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. Robert Mueller's report is about to be released. Before the press and the public finally see the document for themselves, Barr wants a chance to tell his own version of the story it contains. His version sounds like this. The special counsel found no evidence that any American, including anyone associated with the Trump campaign, conspired or coordinated with the Russian government or the IRA in this illegal scheme. Put another way, the special counsel found no collusion by any Americans in IRA's illegal activities. The special counsel's report did not find any evidence that members of the Trump campaign or anyone associated with the campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in these hacking operations. In other words, there was no evidence of the Trump campaign collusion with the Russian government's hacking. So that's the bottom line. After nearly two years of investigation, thousands of subpoenas, hundreds of warrants and witness interviews, the special counsel confirmed that the Russian government sponsored efforts to illegally interfere with the 2016 presidential election, but did not find that the Trump campaign or other Americans colluded in those efforts. Barr's version sounds suspiciously similar to President Trump's account. I can only say this, there was absolutely no collusion. No collusion, which I knew anyway, no coordination, no nothing. Time, no collusion, no obstruction. We want to get back to running our great country. There was no collusion, there was no anything. I didn't. But is the bottom line according to Barr the same as the bottom line according to Robert Mueller? We'll let you decide. This is The Report, Episode 7, Charging Decisions. The previous episodes have told the story of the factual findings of the Mueller report. What did investigators figure out about what happened? And what were the questions they couldn't fully answer? Conducting the investigation is one part of the special counsel's job, collecting evidence and assembling a record. But the investigation actually supports Mueller's larger responsibility— 
he must reach a set of legal conclusions about the evidence his team has found. The special counsel needs to decide which parts of the story laid out in volume one of the report amount to prosecutable crimes. This episode covers those decisions. Where does Mueller decide to bring charges? And when he doesn't, is that because he thinks nothing improper or possibly criminal occurred? Or is it because he finds that the evidence just isn't sufficient to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt? Here's what the Mueller report says about how the special counsel's office made those decisions. It's being read by Benjamin Wittes, who, as always, is reading or paraphrasing the report itself. The office evaluated whether the conduct of the individuals considered for prosecution constituted a federal offense and whether admissible evidence would probably be sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction. Here's how Mueller, rather than Barr, describes his bottom line. The investigation established multiple links between Trump campaign officials and individuals tied to the Russian government. Those links included Russian offers of assistance to the campaign. In some instances, the campaign was receptive to the offer, while in other instances, the campaign officials shied away. Ultimately, the investigation did not establish that the campaign coordinated or conspired with the Russian government in its election interference activities. That may sound a bit like no collusion, but is it really? The answer, it turns out, is complicated. And we'll get to it. But to do so, we first have to walk through Mueller's charging decisions. Broadly speaking, those fall into five major categories of judgments. The first category involves Russian social media manipulation. Remember the Russian trolling operation? The Russian campaign began in mid-2014. That's when employees of what's known as the Internet Research Agency first came to the U.S. to gather the material that they would later use in their elaborate social media postings. By the end of 2016, the Russians had set up fake social media accounts that reached millions of voters. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly how to build audience. Our political dysfunction, our tribalism, and our hyper-partisanship was something that was really easy for them to stoke. That clearly stated uh, that the Russian government was in fact behind. Yevgeny Prigozhin, he's one of Russia's richest and most powerful oligarchs. Donald Trump Jr. and top advisors like Kellyanne Conway all retweeted these fake accounts. According to Robert Mueller, that whole operation was illegal. Good afternoon. A grand jury in the District of Columbia today returned an indictment presented by the special counsel's office for committing federal crimes while seeking to interfere in the United States political system. The defendants allegedly conducted what they called information warfare against the United States. On February 16, 2018, a federal grand jury in the District of Columbia returned an indictment charging 13 Russian nationals and three Russian entities, including the Internet Research Agency and Concord Management and Consulting, with violating U.S. criminal laws in order to interfere with U.S. elections and political processes. The indictment charges the defendants with conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud and aggravated identity theft. As of this writing, the prosecution of Concord remains ongoing before the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. The other defendants remain at large. 
How does setting up a troll farm to send tweets and buy Facebook ads amount to a criminal conspiracy? Mary McCord, who formerly headed DOJ's National Security Division, explains. The defendants were charged with a conspiracy to defraud the functions of U.S. government agencies. A a conspiracy to defraud the United States doesn't necessarily have to mean that you conspired to commit a specific crime, but you conspired with others to inhibit through deceit and fraud to prevent U.S. government agencies from doing their job. So in the case of the IRA indictment, this conspiracy, as alleged, is to defraud the Federal Election Commission, to defraud the Department of Justice, and to defraud the Department of State, because the Federal Election Commission is charged with ensuring, among other things, that our elections are not improperly influenced by foreign governments. And that means foreign governments can't contribute money to campaigns. They can't engage in campaigning. The Department of Justice administers the Foreign Agent Registration Act and is responsible for ensuring that people who are representing and and lobbying and, and putting out public statements on behalf of foreign governments are registered as foreign agents. Here's former U.S. attorney and senior Justice Department and FBI official Chuck Rosenberg. There are a bunch of rules that um, limit the way a foreign national can participate in a U.S. election, how they would travel in this country, with whom they'd have to register, what they would have to disclose, and the like. Uh, here, the Russians didn't follow any of the rules. They assume false identities, they applied for visas using false names and fictitious information. They defrauded or impeded or impaired the State Department in doing so. And in making expenditures to affect the outcome of an election, they also impeded and impaired the FEC. And in addition, they didn't make the requisite disclosures to the Attorney General of the United States. On this one, the no collusion thing is fair enough. As you'll recall from episode one, Mueller found that no Americans knowingly participated in the IRA operation, including anyone from the Trump campaign. While Trump campaign officials retweeted IRA content and shared it, they were just dupes, not conspirators. And so the only American who's charged with anything here is a guy named Richard Pinedo, who participated in the identity fraud, but he didn't know he was helping the Russians when he did so. This set of indictments targets Russian nationals, who probably won't ever see the inside of a U.S. courtroom. It is unlikely that the U.S. will ever obtain actual physical custody of these defendants. These individuals are not going to travel someplace where they would be subject to being extradited, and they're certainly not going to travel here uh, because they aren't going to want to be arrested for this offense. So what's the point of indicting them? McCord says it's partly to use the indictment to tell the story. Well, I think in this case in particular, the the conspiracy to defraud the United States allowed Mr. Mueller and the rest of the special counsel's team to paint a really vivid picture of what was going on in terms of this dis- disinformation campaign. It allowed him to paint a broad picture of what was going on, which had as its effect the interference with the ability of three government agencies and departments to do their job. While the individual defendants are all still in Russia, One of the corporate defendants, Concord Management, has appeared in U.S. court and will actually face trial. 
Concord Management is alleged in this indictment to have essentially been one of the primary funders of this disinformation campaign. And so even though it's a Russian company, um, it decided after the indictment was returned to hire American lawyers, and they did move to dismiss the indictment, and those motions were denied by the district court judge here in the District of Columbia. That case has yet to go to trial. The second group of cases involved the Russian hacking and dumping operation. The GRU deploys this tactic known as spear phishing. The GRU stole the passwords and identities of network administrators and used those to get access to democratic files. A fake online profile called Guccifer 2.0 and then leaked that information first through dedicated websites and then through WikiLeaks. It was kind of like a trial balloon message, right? Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're Charging the Russian hacking itself is fairly straightforward. The indictment charges 12 Russian military officers by name for conspiring to interfere with the 2016 presidential election. On July 13, 2018, a federal grand jury in the District of Columbia returned an indictment charging Russian military intelligence officers from the GRU with conspiring to hack into various U.S. computers used by the Clinton campaign the DNC, the DCCC, and other U.S. persons. The indictment also charges a separate conspiracy to hack into the computers of U.S. persons and entities responsible for the administration of the 2016 election. As of this writing, all 12 defendants remain at large. The indictment alleges that the defendants conspired with one another and with others to hack into the computers of U.S. persons and entities involved in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, steal documents from those computers, and stage releases of the stolen documents to interfere in the election. The indictment also describes how in staging the releases, the defendants used the Guccifer 2.0 persona to disseminate documents through WikiLeaks. Here's Rosenberg again. In the GRU indictment, the conspiracy was to violate, for instance, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, to hack into protected computers, to steal information, and to dump that information into the public domain. That's a conspiracy to violate a substantive offense contained elsewhere in the federal code. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is basically an anti-burglary law for computers. You can't make unauthorized use of a computer, and you can't um, then damage or destroy it or tamper with it or steal from it um, uh, things of value. And, of course, this was, these were things of value that were taken, and, and there was also just the straight unauthorized access. So in this case, case, the defendants really are a number of people that are part of the Russians' military intelligence agency called the Main Intelligence Directorate of the General Staff, which we call the GRU. And that means we are not, we're no longer in the world of private company that might have ties to the Russian government. Like, this is the Russian, this would be like our, you know, like our CIA, right? And so this charges them with hacking into emails of individuals associated with the Clinton campaign, hacking into the network of the Democratic National Campaign Committee and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, DCCC as it's known, in order to steal emails. The place where this story becomes more complicated than the IRA indictment is in the dissemination of hacked materials. Like the IRA trolling indictment, no Americans are ultimately charged with a hacking and dumping activity. But that isn't because no Americans are involved in the hacking and dumping plot. 
It's true, no Americans participated in hacking computers, but the Trump campaign is plenty involved in the leaks. Remember back from episode three? Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails. Trump Jr. follows up again and he says, what's behind this Wednesday leak? Our source uh, is not the Russian government. New emails reveal Roger Stone was in touch with a senior Trump campaign official, Steve Bannon, about WikiLeaks during the 2016 presidential race. Recall that at the Trump campaign's request, Stone went out and tried to get more information about future WikiLeaks releases of Clinton-related emails from Jerome Corsi and Randy Credico, and that he directly communicated with Guccifer 2.0, who's actually the GRU. Credico sends Stone a text that reads, big news Wednesday, now pretend you don't know me. Stone tweets, Wednesday, Hillary Clinton is done, hashtag WikiLeaks. And remember that Don Jr. communicated with WikiLeaks himself, which even gave him the password to a website of an anti-Trump super PAC. The WikiLeaks account sends a direct message to Donald Trump Jr. and says, there's this anti-Trump PAC that is, we figured out the password and here it is, and if you want to take a look at this. There are a number of potential legal questions here. Some of those Mueller deals with quickly. Mueller ruled out bringing charges for trafficking in or receiving stolen property for the post-hacking dissemination of materials. The office says the law in question applies only to tangible goods, so stolen emails don't count. Mueller also declines to bring a criminal case against someone. It's not clear who, because the section is almost entirely redacted for violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act for what appears to be an incident of, quote, careless or inadvertent unauthorized access to a computer. But the big question here is one of conspiracy. Here's Mueller's bottom line on that score. A Russian intelligence service conducted computer intrusion operations against entities, employees, and volunteers working on the Clinton campaign and then released stolen documents. The investigation also identified numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. Although the investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and work to secure that outcome, and that the campaign expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through the Russian efforts, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. To understand this statement, we need to unpack it line by line. The first two lines are easy enough. The Russian intelligence service hacking democratic entities and releasing documents is addressed in the GRU indictment. And the, quote, numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign are all throughout the report. But there's nothing illegal about a campaign having links to a foreign government. Suspicious, maybe, but not illegal. But listen to this line again. The investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and work to secure that outcome and that the campaign expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts. Know what Mueller is saying here, that both sides understood that the Russians were stealing and dumping information, and that this was good for the Trump campaign. And then finally, this is the key line legally. 
The investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. In other words, while the investigation could establish that the Russians did the hacking and dumping, that they reached out to Trump campaign officials, and that Trump campaign officials were enthusiastic about the email dumps, the investigation, quote, did not establish that the two sides were actively collaborating with one another. When Mueller says, quote, the investigation did not establish, it's important to understand what he means and what he doesn't mean. A statement that the investigation did not establish particular facts does not mean there was no evidence of those facts. It only means that there isn't enough evidence to contemplate a criminal case. So does all of this mean Barr was right when he said this? The special counsel's report did not find any evidence that members of the Trump campaign or anyone associated with the campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in these hacking operations. In other words, there was no evidence of the Trump campaign collusion with the Russian government's hacking. The special counsel's report did not find that any person associated with the Trump campaign illegally participated in the dissemination of the materials. To answer that, we need to understand the relationship in the Mueller report between the three C words, collusion, coordination, and conspiracy. In evaluating whether evidence about collective action of multiple individuals constituted a crime, we applied the framework of conspiracy law, not the concept of collusion. The term collude has frequently been invoked in public reporting about the investigation, but collusion is not a specific offense or theory of liability found in the United States legal code, nor is it a term of art in federal criminal law. For those reasons, the office's focus in analyzing questions of joint criminal liability was on conspiracy. Remember that Mueller is a prosecutor, not a journalist or historian or a podcaster. So he's only interested in crimes. Collusion isn't a crime, it's just a word. So he doesn't evaluate whether Trump campaign activity would meet a reasonable person's understanding of collusion. And actually, coordination in this setting isn't a crime either. Here's what the report says about how Mueller defines coordination. Like collusion, coordination does not have a settled definition in federal criminal law. We understood coordination to require an agreement, tacit or express, between the Trump campaign and the Russian government on election interference. That requires more than the two parties taking actions that were informed by or responsive to the other's actions or interests. We applied the term coordination in that sense when stating in the report that the investigation did not establish that the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. So it all boils down, legally speaking, to conspiracy. Here's Chuck Rosenberg again. Conspiracy is actually a fairly simple concept. It's an agreement to do something that the law forbids, and then a step, any step, one step, to accomplishing that goal. It certainly doesn't have to be in writing. It can be implicit. It can be implied from the facts. But there has to be an agreement. It's not enough that the Russians are doing things both they and the Trump campaign know are illegal and know will benefit Trump politically, even though the Trump campaign welcomes it, 
and works to maximize the benefit to themselves. Without an agreement between the parties, there isn't a legal conspiracy. So while Mueller says that the Trump team wasn't knowingly involved in the trolling operation, the report says something different about the hacking and dumping operation. It says that the Trump team's knowing and enthusiastic involvement in the dissemination of hacked materials doesn't amount to a criminal conspiracy. This brings us to the third broad category of possible charges, the great many other contacts with Russians. Those contacts took many forms, business deals, attempts at meetings, back channels, but was any of that a crime? The Trump administration is facing new allegations about connections to Russian officials. When Trump's incoming national security advisor, Michael Flynn, was communicating with the Russian ambassador about sanctions imposed on Russia by the Obama administration. Canada Trump may have discussed the Trump Tower Moscow project with Michael Cohen all the way up till election day. I have no loans, no dealings, and no current pending deals. Some Trump campaign officials and other associates had repeated contact with Russian intelligence before the election. That he and then Senator Jeff Sessions discussed campaign-related issues during last year's presidential race. Handshake is not a meeting. A, a casual conversation is, is not some furtive attempt to subvert democracy and swing the election results. The office's investigation uncovered evidence of numerous links between Trump campaign officials and individuals having or claiming to have ties to the Russian government. The office evaluated the contacts under several sets of federal laws, including conspiracy laws and statutes governing foreign agents who operate in the United States. After considering the available evidence, the office did not pursue charges under these statutes against any of the individuals, with the exception of charges under the Foreign Agents Registration Act against Paul Manafort and Richard Gates based on their activities on behalf of Ukraine. Here again, Mueller says he's not thinking about the language of collusion. He's looking to conspiracy law. And the reason he doesn't bring charges here is similar to the hacking and dumping situation. The investigation did not establish that the contacts described amounted to an agreement to commit any substantive violation of federal criminal law. But there are other issues here, too. The special counsel's office also evaluates the various Russian contacts under laws governing people who are acting as foreign agents in the United States. David Laufman served as the chief of DOJ's counterintelligence and export control section. He explains one of those laws, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. So FARA is a federal statute that is focused predominantly on promoting transparency and disclosure in general, it requires parties who fit the definition of a, quote, agent of a foreign principal, end quote, to register with the Department of Justice. Um, the registration requirement applies only if uh, someone is acting within the United States to engage in one of several denominated categories of, of conduct and doing so at the direction, order, control, or request of that foreign principal. The first and broadest um, is defined in the statute as, quote, political activities, and that's defined as any activity that the person intends to in any way influence any agency or official of the government of the United States or any section of the public with reference to the domestic or foreign policies of the United States or with reference to the political or public interest policies or relations of a government of a foreign country or a foreign political party. 
Ultimately, the special counsel does charge a number of individuals under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, but not for activity directly related to Russia. Two of those individuals are Paul Manafort and Rick Gates. The investigation uncovered extensive evidence that Paul Manafort's and Richard Gates's pre-campaign work for the government of Ukraine violated the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Manafort and Gates were charged for that conduct and admitted to it when they pleaded guilty in the District of Columbia prosecution. Manafort, he admitted that from 2006 to 2015, he led a multi-million dollar lobbying campaign in the United States at the direction of the government of Ukraine. He admitted that he knew it was illegal to engage in such lobbying without registering and that he intentionally did so. When the Justice Department contacted Mr. Manafort and his associate uh, Richard Gates in September 2016 to determine if they had an obligation to register, they caused false and misleading letters to be sent to the Department of Justice. Mr. Gates has acknowledged um, being a in essence, a confederate of Paul Manafort in carrying out the scheme to which Manafort himself pled guilty in the District of Columbia. Mueller also developed evidence regarding Michael Flynn's violation of FARA with respect to work performed on behalf of Turkey. Mr. Flynn pled guilty to making a false statement in connection with conversations he had had with then-Russian Ambassador Kislyak, um, and he was convicted only of that. He was not convicted of any FARA-related uh, violation. Um, however, in his plea agreement, he did admit to having done work uh, on behalf of Turkey uh, that required registration and having failed to um, meet his obligations under, under FARA. The conduct in question is related, among other things, to an op-ed Flynn had published on Election Day 2016 calling for the extradition of a Turkish cleric from the United States. It was an op-ed that read as if it had been written by, you know, President Erdogan um, of Turkey. And the government's investigation, I think, resulted in information that the Turkish government or other foreign principals had involvement in the preparation of that in U.S. persons in its, in its dissemination in a manner that should have resulted in FARA registration. Mueller also considered whether George Papadopoulos or Carter Page had violated this law. The office investigated whether George Papadopoulos acted as an agent of or at the direction and control of the government of Israel. While the investigation revealed significant ties between Papadopoulos and Israel, the office ultimately determined that the evidence was not sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And while DOJ was able to obtain multiple reauthorizations of a FISA warrant on Carter Page as the agent of a foreign power, Mueller says the evidence wasn't enough to pass the higher standards required at trial. In order to, to get a FISA warrant, the government has to be able to demonstrate to the satisfaction of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that someone is acting as an agent of a foreign power. But the burden of proof the government has to meet in that context is only probable cause that the individual was an agent of a foreign power. That's a fairly low standard. Probable cause is a standard used to obtain search warrants hundreds of times a day all across the United States. And that determination that there was probable cause that Carter Page was an agent of a foreign power is not nearly enough to determine that there's sufficient admissible evidence to obtain and sustain a conviction of him for violating any law. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. FARA is primarily about disclosure and registration requirements. But there are places where U.S. law draws firmer lines against foreign participation. One of those places is elections. It's illegal for a foreign national to participate in U.S. elections by contributing anything of value with the intent to influence an election. Here's the fourth category of possible charges. Mueller's team considered whether to charge members of the Trump campaign with violations of campaign finance law, including for their participation in the June 9th Trump Tower meeting with Russians offering dirt on Hillary Clinton. The office considered whether the June 9th, 2016 meeting at Trump Tower constituted a prosecutable violation of the campaign finance laws. So what exactly is the law in question? Federal campaign finance law broadly prohibits foreign nationals from making contributions, donations, or expenditures in connection with elections and prohibits anyone from soliciting, accepting, or receiving such contributions or donations. Foreign nationals may not make and no one may accept, solicit, or receive from them a contribution or donation of money or other thing of value in connection with an election. Here's Bob Bauer, an expert in campaign finance and election law, who served as White House counsel under President Obama. In addition to the prohibition on foreign nationals making any contribution or expenditure, anything of value in support of an American presidential campaign, the rules prohibit the U.S. nationals from engaging in that activity. One is they may not solicit campaign contributions or support of any kind, including anything of value. And under the law, solicitation is a direct request or an implied request for support. Another portion of the regulations prohibits U.S. nationals from substantially assisting foreign nationals in violating the statute. In short, a foreign national is prohibited from giving anything of value, whether it's money or something else, for the purpose of influencing an election. So it does not mean, for example, that a foreign national to have violated the statute would bring a cash contribution or, for example, a valuable that could be redeemed for cash. Anything that could be useful to the campaign and that can be valued as useful to the campaign would constitute something of value in turn treated as a contribution in violation of the statute from the foreign national. How does this apply to the Trump Tower meeting? Regarding the now infamous Trump Tower meeting, where Elvis is Rob Golson emailed Donald Trump Jr. writing in part, offered to provide the Trump campaign with some official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary. If it's what you say, I love it, especially for later in the summer. 
Goldstone passed along an offer purportedly from a Russian government official to provide, quote, official documents and information, unquote, to the Trump campaign for the purposes of influencing the presidential election. Trump Jr. appears to have accepted that offer and to have arranged a meeting to receive those materials. Documentary evidence in the form of email chains supports the inference that Kushner and Manafort were aware of that purpose and attended the June 9th meeting anticipating the receipt of helpful information to the campaign from Russian sources. As you recall, in the original email exchange in which the invitation was issued from Russia and the dirt on Hillary Clinton was just generally characterized as such. Don Jr. in a famous email says something to the effect of, if it's what you say it is, I love it. That would suggest, right, he's soliciting it, he's interested in it, it has value. Mueller's office says that the dirt offered by the Russians likely qualifies as a thing of value under the law. There's no doubt, and Mueller team concedes as much in the report that opposition research has value. After all, uh, campaigns hire research teams that do both research on the candidate himself or herself, but also opposition research, research on the opposition. There really isn't a category of campaign spending that is subject to more rigorous prohibitive treatment than the foreign national prohibition. But here's an added complication. You have to know the actual value in question to decide if a violation is a misdemeanor or a felony. The criminal benchmarks are $2,000 and $25,000 for a felony violation. Valuing negative information can be hard. How do you know how much dirt is worth? And there's another problem, a bigger one, that ultimately stops Mueller from attempting to bring a case. In order to prove a crime, the government has to show that the violation was, quote, knowing and willful, meaning that a person knows they're breaking the law at the time. And the special counsel's office says they don't believe they can prove that Trump Jr., Kushner, or Manafort knew they were violating the law at the time of the meeting. On the facts here, the government would unlikely be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the June 9th meeting participants had general knowledge that their conduct was unlawful. The investigation has not developed evidence that the participants in the meeting were familiar with the foreign contributions ban or the application of federal law to the relevant factual context. The government does not have strong evidence of surreptitious behavior or efforts at concealment at the time of the June 9th meeting. Ultimately, Mueller decides not to pursue charges. Taking into account the high burden to establish a culpable mental state in a campaign finance prosecution and the difficulty in establishing the required valuation, the office decided not to pursue criminal campaign finance charges against Trump Jr. or other campaign officials for the events culminating in the June 9th meeting. Mueller's judgment here is controversial. A lot of analysts think he's being overly cautious. I find that completely baffling. The campaign manager had been on five or six presidential campaigns. He was a senior advisor to Bob Dole in the 1996 campaign, which was characterized, among other things, by allegations that foreign nationals had provided improper support to Bill Clinton's reelection effort. So the notion that uh, you know somehow there would have been no awareness of a zone of legal hazard here, I, I just find very difficult to understand. But even if the Trump Tower meeting doesn't amount to a prosecutable campaign finance crime, Mueller doesn't quite treat it as no collusion either. 
he treats it as a close call whether or not to bring charges. And even without charges, the facts are, well, what they are. And people can judge. The Trump Tower meeting was part and parcel, maybe the most dramatic, well-known example, of an American presidential campaign that was welcoming foreign national support. Most notably, the President of the United States now, the now President of the United States and presidential uh, candidate Donald Trump, openly appealed to the Russians to locate what he believed to be uh, damaging, missing emails from Hillary Clinton. But there were other contacts between the Russians and the Trump campaign. At no time is there any suggestion that the Trump campaign discouraged the Russians from contacting them, discouraged their desire or their offer of assistance. I do not believe anybody in good faith would contest this, that not a campaign finance lawyer, anyone familiar with the campaign finance laws, Democratic, Republican, Independent, you know, animal, vegetable, or mineral, would have agreed for a moment to a senior campaign command in response to those email inquiries inviting a delegation from a foreign power to come and offer quote-unquote dirt on the opposition candidate. There is no chance in light of the history of the prohibition in question and the breadth with which Congress crafted it that that did not present the highest level of legal risk and not just general legal risk as in the potential for civil enforcement by the FEC, criminal enforcement legal risk. All of this brings us to the final group of charges, the massive number of lies about everything. The lies about the hack and leak and WikiLeaks. The lies about the June 9th meeting. The lies about Trump Tower in Moscow. The lies about the contacts with Russians. The list goes on and on. Why all the lies? You were convicted of lying. Michael Flynn was convicted of lying. Michael Cohen was convicted of lying. I I talked to General Flynn. They did not discuss anything having to do with the United States' decision to uh, expel diplomats or or, uh, impose a censure against Russia. It's disgusting. It's so phony. I mean, I can't think of bigger lies. It isn't a crime for the Trump campaign or the Trump administration to lie to the American public. The remedy for that is political, not criminal. But it is a crime when someone lies to federal investigators or to Congress. And that's what happened here. The office determined that certain individuals associated with the campaign lied to investigators about campaign contacts with Russia and have taken other actions to interfere with the investigation. As explained below, the office therefore charged some U.S. persons connected to the campaign with false statements and obstruction offenses. Here's Scott Anderson, a senior editor at Lawfare and a fellow at the Brookings Institution. 18 U.S.C. 1001 is a criminal provision in law that specifically makes it a criminal act to make false statements to government investigators, whether those investigators are in the legislative branch, for instance, with congressional committees, or whether they are in the executive branch, like with FBI agents. Generally, there are three, although it's kind of more like four elements that go into a 1001 violation. First, the statement that the defendant made has to be false, fictitious, or fraudulent. Second, the defendant has to know it was a false statement. And third, although sometimes lumped with the, the second one, has to, he, has, he or she has to have known it was illegal to make a false statement in that context. And the final element is that it has to be a material false statement, meaning it has to have reasonably been known or expected to have some sort of substantial impact on the agency's activities or their expectations and how they went about their 
objective in interviewing or discussing with the defendant. Here's the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Adam Schiff, questioning Mueller when he appeared before Congress. When your investigation looked into these matters, numerous Trump associates lied to your team, the grand jury, and to Congress? number uh, of persons that we interviewed in uh, our investigation, it turns out, did lie. Mike Flynn lied? Uh, he was convicted of lying, yes. George Papadopoulos was convicted of lying? True. Paul Manafort was convicted of lying? True. Paul Manafort was, in fact, went so far as to encourage other people to lie? That is accurate. Manafort's deputy, Rick Gates, lied? That is accurate. Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer, was indicted for lying? True. He lied to stay on message with the president? Allegedly by him. The first person the special counsel charged with making false statements was George Papadopoulos. Here's Anderson. Papadopoulos was charged under Section 1001 for a variety of false statements he made in a January 27, 2017 interview with the FBI in regards to his prior interactions with several figures who are believed to be potentially associated with the Russian government. Papadopoulos essentially asserted that he primarily made contacts with these individuals prior to really becoming part of the Trump campaign uh, and prior to that sort of interaction and generally tried to play down his interactions. On January 27, 2017, Papadopoulos agreed to be interviewed by FBI agents who informed him that the interview was part of the investigation into potential Russian government interference in the 2016 presidential election. During the interview, Papadopoulos acknowledged that he had met Joseph Mifsud and that Mifsud told him that the Russians had dirt on Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. But Papadopoulos stated multiple times that those communications occurred before he joined the Trump campaign and that it was a, quote, very strange coincidence, unquote, to be told of the dirt before he started working for the campaign. This account was false. Papadopoulos met Mifsud for the first time after Papadopoulos had already learned that he would be a foreign policy advisor for the campaign. Mifsud showed interest in Papadopoulos only after learning of his role on the campaign, and Mifsud told Papadopoulos about the Russians possessing dirt on candidate Clinton in late April 2016, more than a month after Papadopoulos had joined the campaign and been publicly announced by candidate Trump. Later, he ended up pleading guilty uh, to violations of Section 1001 for this, um, where essentially he acknowledged that, in fact, he did uh, interact with Masood and these other people and made contact with them after joining the Trump campaign. According to uh, the Mueller report, this really had an impact in different pa parts of the investigation and shaping how the FBI approached it, in particular with their own interview with Joseph Massoud, which took place on February 10th, in regards to the line of questioning they pursued with him, um, which ended up being uh, a limited opportunity as they, Mr. Massoud has since kind of disappeared from the radar and is one of the big kind of uh, blank spots we have in the investigation. Papadopoulos also falsely claimed that he met Olga Polonskaya before he joined the campaign and falsely told the FBI that he had no relationship at all with her. In truth, however, Papadopoulos met Polonskaya after he joined the campaign. He believed that she had connections to high-level Russian government officials and could help him arrange a potential foreign policy trip to Russia. 
And it seems like there is a pretty consistent theme to the misrepresentations that were made in regards to these different interactions. And the theme to those across the board was to try and downplay those relationships and to reorient them in the timeline to make it so that they did not appear to have any sort of correlation with the time at which Papadopoulos became involved with the Trump campaign. Given the seriousness of the lies and omissions and the effect on the FBI's investigation, the office charged Papadopoulos with making false statements to the FBI. Papadopoulos pleads guilty ultimately to one charge of violating Section 1001. He gets about two weeks in prison, about a $10,000 fine, and I think around 200 hours of community service. Mueller's office also charged Michael Flynn for false statements. Michael Flynn agreed to be interviewed by the FBI on January 24, 2017, four days after he had officially assumed his duties as National Security Advisor to the President. During the interview, Flynn made several false statements pertaining to his communications with the Russian ambassador. Michael Flynn was charged under Section 1001 for making certain false statements to the FBI. Those false statements specifically related to interactions he had with the Russian ambassador, Kiskiak. In one point, he told the FBI that he had uh, not engaged in any discussion with Kislyak urging any sort of sort of action in response to the imposition of sanctions by the Obama administration. This was later, he admitted, was false statement. Um, he also indicated that he hadn't urged Kislyak to take any particular action regarding U.N. Security Council resolution in relation to Israel and settlement activity. That was also, he later confessed, a false statement. Flynn made these false statements to the FBI at a time when he was serving as national security advisor and when the FBI had an open investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election, including the nature of any links between the Trump campaign and Russia. Flynn's false statements and omissions impeded and otherwise had a material impact on that ongoing investigation. Flynn made separate submissions to the Department of Justice pursuant to the Foreign Agents Registration Act that also contained materially false statements and omissions. In addition to that, uh, he was found to have made certain false statements uh, in regards to registration materials. He, again, also filed under FARA, uh, although he ultimately wasn't asked to plead guilty in regards to a separate charge to that, but it is included in his kind of statement of offense. But that related not to activity he pursued in regards to Russia in any way, but independent activity that he had engaged in on behalf of the government of Turkey. Based on the totality of that conduct, the office decided to charge Flynn with making false statements to the FBI. On December 1st, 2017, Flynn pleaded guilty to that charge and also admitted his false statements to the department in his FARA filing. Flynn is awaiting sentencing. And Michael Cohen was also charged with and pled guilty to making false statements. I am sorry for my lies and for lying to Congress. I am sorry for actively working to hide from you the truth about Mr. Trump when you needed it most. I have lied, but I am not a liar. Michael Cohen is charged as well with violations of Section 1001. Um, but in this case, it's not in relation to interviews he had with the FBI, at least not primarily. Um, instead, it, it relates to in the first instance, testimony he provided to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence in 2017. 
As part of that testimony, Cohen made a number of assertions, primarily regarding constructing a tower in Moscow. In late August 2017, in advance of his testimony, Cohen caused a two-page statement to be sent to the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee addressing Trump Tower Moscow. First, Cohen stated that the Trump Moscow project had ended in January 2016 and that he had briefed candidate Trump on the project only three times before making the unilateral decision to terminate it. Second, Cohen represented that he never agreed to travel to Russia in connection with the project and never considered asking Trump to travel for the project. Third, Cohen stated that he did not recall any Russian government contact about the project, including any response to an email that he had sent to a Russian government email account. All three of those statements Cohen later conceded were inaccurate. Um, He basically said, you know, the project continued through June 2016, uh, that essentially he had briefed President Trump on it regularly, and that he he had changed the sort of testimony in his prior meetings before the House and Senate committees in an effort to adjust the timeline of the Trump Tower project to push it before the Republican primaries, build some separation between that project uh, and the president and that project and President Trump's presidential run, as at that point, at least he was no, not yet the Republican nominee. And according to Cohen, uh, in his original testimony, had a minimal role, while in fact, he had a larger role. One person who the special counsel determines did not commit perjury or false statements is former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Mueller examined Sessions' statements to the Senate that he hadn't had contact with the Russians in light of revelations that Sessions had interacted with Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak multiple times. However, Mueller concluded that because of ambiguity in the questions and answers, it isn't clear Sessions was being intentionally misleading. When they were evaluating these sorts of statements, Sessions came back and, uh, in addition to kind of conceding that he had misstated himself initially, really made the point that he understood that the the questions to be asking primarily about lines of communication between or on behalf of the Trump campaign and the Russian government of some sort of substantive exchange, not as covering these sorts of incidental meetings or handshakes uh, in which he was involved as a senator and as a campaign official with a large number of people that didn't have much substantive information uh, exchanged or involved. Uh, And therefore, he had not meant to or intended to make a sort of false statement. Because that element of intent was a lacking, um, the special counsel's office ultimately concluded in March 2018 that pursuing charges would not be appropriate uh, and informed Sessions that they did not intend to do so. And in a final, mostly redacted section, Mueller acknowledges that during the investigation, there were other individuals interviewed who omitted material information or provided false information to investigators. Applying the principles of federal prosecution, the office did not seek criminal charges against any individuals other than those listed above. In some instances, that decision was due to evidentiary hurdles to proving falsity. In others, the office determined that the witness ultimately provided truthful information and that considerations of culpability, deterrence, and resource preservation weighed against prosecution. Where does this all leave us? The Russians interfered in the U.S. election to help Donald Trump. And Trump knew and welcomed that assistance. But no one in the Trump campaign engaged in behavior 
that met the legal standards for a prosecutable crime of conspiracy. Is that really the same as no collusion? Here's the Trump camp answer to that question. There was no collusion with Russia, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. It was a complete and total exoneration. Uh, so that makes it a complete and total exoneration. I don't know any other way to look at it. Make no mistake about it, my fellow Americans, this was a total vindication of the President of the United States and our campaign. That's the version of the story according to people like President Trump, Attorney General Barr, and their supporters. At Mueller's congressional testimony, Congressman Adam Schiff offered his own version of the meaning of the contents of the report. Your investigation determined that the Trump campaign, including Donald Trump himself, knew that a foreign power was intervening in our election and welcomed it, built Russian meddling into their strategy, and used it. How else are we to describe a presidential campaign which did not inform the authorities of a foreign offer of dirt on their opponent, which did not publicly shun it or turn it away, but which instead invited it, encouraged it, and made full use of it. This is also a story about money, about greed and corruption, about the leadership of a campaign willing to compromise the nation's interest, not only to win, but to make money at the same time. For your report also tells a story about lies, lots of lies. Lies about a gleaming tower in Moscow and lies about talks with the Kremlin. Lies about secret negotiations with the Russians over sanctions and lies about WikiLeaks. Lies about polling data and lies about hush money payments. Lies about meetings in the Seychelles to set up secret back channels and lies about a secret meeting in New York Trump Tower. Lies to the FBI, lies to your staff, and lies to this committee. Lies to obstruct an investigation into the most serious attack on our democracy by a foreign power in our history. We've come to the end of volume one, the story of the investigation into what Russia did and who helped. But volume one is only half of the story. If volume one is the story uncovered by the investigation, volume two is the story of the investigation itself. More specifically, it's the story of how the President of the United States tried to stop it. Thank you for listening to part seven of The Report. As a programming note, we'll be taking the next two Fridays off before launching The Report, volume two. For those weeks, you'll hear bonus episodes going into parts of The Report that didn't make it into official episodes. We hope you'll continue to listen, and in the meantime, please continue to share the report. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Democracy Fund, and by listeners like you. To support this project, please go to lawfareblog.com. The report is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. Ian Enright is the executive producer. From the Lawfare team, the project is led by executive editor Susan Hennessy. Editor-in-chief is Benjamin Wittes. Interviews conducted by managing editor Quinta Jurassic. Recordings by Michaela Fogel and Jacob Schultz. Additional assistance by Eugenia Lostri, Vishnu Kanan, and Hadley Baker. Special thanks to Mary McCord, Chuck Rosenberg, 
David Laufman, Bob Bauer, Scott Anderson, and you, the listening audience. To support this show, please share this podcast wherever you can. And while you're at it, please subscribe and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Our website, lawfareblog.com, is where you can learn more about Lawfare, read our work, and support our mission. Until next time. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us.